Welcome to The Rooster Crows, a podcast about life and death and everything in between. I'm Reverend Roberta Howie. Today, we are talking about a branch of Christianity which is slowly growing in popularity, contemplative Christianity. You may be used to Christianity that tells you what to do. Contemplative Christianity focuses not on what you do, but rather how we can become more peaceful, loving people. It is more about a state of being rather than doing. It is an ancient tradition that focuses on prayer and meditation and has been sidelined by more judgmental forms of faith. Today, we delve into this wonderful tradition by talking with Justin Coots, the creator of the online contemplative Christianity community, New Eden Ministry. My colleague, the Reverend Stephen Milton, and Justin will explore what this ancient tradition is and how now could be a really good time for a comeback. I am speaking to Justin Coots. He is a Christian, but um, what one might call a complicated Christian, in that <laughs> he uh, he's drawing on many strains of Christianity and things outside of Christianity for his spirituality. So um, thank you very much for joining me today, uh, Justin. Yeah, of course. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Now, full disclosure, Justin and I know each other from uh, our time in seminary. Um, we were both at seminary at the same time. I think Justin started a year or two after me. And I was asked by the principal of Emmanuel College to make a film about five students who um, were going through Emmanuel College at that time, which is a uh, seminary used by the United Church of Canada. And Justin was one of the people who I followed for a year. And it wasn't the easiest of years, I guess. Yeah, it was a tough one for me. I was trying to commute from Manitoulin Island, where I live, which is about a six-hour drive from Toronto. I, was, I have a son who's here, and for custody reasons, I had to come back and forth. So I was doing my full-time studies at Emmanuel and spending half my time on the island driving back and forth, and uh, it didn't add up in the end, and I didn't end up. <laughs> it was too ambitious. I bit off more than I could chew. But, but you certainly landed on your feet. I mean, you started a really thriving um, uh, Facebook and website and blog presence uh, with your New Eden Ministries. Um, and it is uh, different from what people get on Sunday morning uh, at church. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, what you found wanting with kind of mainline Christianity, which led you to go in this direction. Yeah, sure. Um, I guess just very briefly, I'll say my my spiritual background and my upbringing um, landed me into two different worlds. So I, I grew up from the time I was very little, uh, both in the Quaker community, um, attending a traditional rural Quaker meeting in, in Southern Ontario with gray walls and, and all of that. Um, but my mom was also kind of a hippie. So I spent a lot of time at Indigenous ceremonies um, and was very involved in Indigenous ceremonies from the time I was young. I went to my first sweat when I was 12. Um, and so I, I have a lot of experience in both of those worlds. Um, and when I came into seminary and into, um, you know, the world of, of mainstream Christianity in general, not just with the United Church, but with, you know, all of Western Christianity, I kind of entered into that with these two sort of fringe um, pieces in my back pocket. Um, and both of them have kind of a contemplative element. It's not language that you would use in either uh, tradition to talk about contemplative, but Quakers are big into silence, um, and the Indigenous communities have a whole contemplative tradition, um, again, which with a different language, but it's a contemplative tradition. Um, and so I, I feel like Western Christianity is missing that contemplative tradition, uh, not because we don't have it, but just because we've sort of set it aside for the last few centuries and have been ignoring it. 
Um, so I've sort of made it my task to pour through all the old contemplative texts that I can find and pick out the stuff that speaks to me and uh, try and share it with the world. Cool. And maybe you could, uh, you probably have a short definition of contemplative Christianity. Could you give that here and then we can unpack it some? Yeah. Um, there's there's a, a funny linguistic thing that's happened and I would love to talk to a linguist who could say these things for sure. But my guess is um, that it happened when, when Western Christianity started to dialogue with Eastern religion, uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and stuff. But we talk about meditation um, in our culture as sort of sitting and trying not to think of anything. Um, and in the traditional Christian language, meditation is actually to think about things a whole bunch um, and to meditate upon things and to think about their deeper meanings and reflect upon the symbolism and that kind of stuff. And contemplation in the Christian tradition is the word for what we often think of as meditation, um, as what Buddhists would be doing or, or what you might have it, um, where you're, you're, you're entering into a, a sort of thoughtless space and you're encountering God in the silence and the stillness um, in a wordless way. Yeah, there seems to be definitely an emphasis in Western Christianity on trying to define God over and over and over again, right? Ideally with words. But contemplative Christianity says that's impossible. Um, why is that? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's kind of, in, in the contemplative tradition, um, we, we often talk about two big words, which just mean positive and negative, and it's apophatic and cataphatic. Apophatic means negative and cataphatic means positive. And so um positive theology is when we say things about god god is love god is good god is gracious god is merciful and those things are true um but the mystics believe that what is even more true than that is what we we negate of god when we say god is not this god is not that and we remove all of the different things which we label god as and what we find underneath is an ineffable unspeakable mystery uh, and so that's the that's the unspeakable part of god I guess in our time, um, people are obviously living in an age of anxiety, right? Um, we we find the the events in the world extraordinarily anxiety provoking, and people often live with a lot of just personal anxiety, where they just you know feel anxious about their life, about their place in the world, and anxious about you know what's going to happen tomorrow, the next day, even the next hour. To say that God is ineffable and perhaps impossible to ever understand or define is that just more anxiety producing or is there a calm that can come out of that that's a good question i mean i think if it stays in the realm of the mind then it is sort of anxiety producing and isolating um and i think that's where the contemplative practice is key because contemplation isn't just about ideas there's some ideas but it's also about um practice and and how we do things um and one of my favorite mystical writers the cloud of unknowing this medieval book that's all about this stuff um says we cannot know god by our mind but by our heart and by our love we can know god fully um and so i think that's that's the key is that we have to set aside in contemplative practice not all the time but it's good to have thoughts and it's good to ask questions and philosophies i'm big into philosophy and metaphysics uh, but in the time of contemplation in the time of of apophatic prayer um it's not that we we enter into emptiness in the sense of you know despair and and darkness and, th and that kind of thing but it's more an emptiness of our thoughts wherein the fullness of god can be known through the heart in a way that we cannot speak with our words which is beyond our words and more than our words could ever hope to encapsulate yeah and that is such a shift particularly for protestants right in that you know the 
in Christian history, the Catholics had focused on what's called the table, right? Taking of the Eucharist, the mass, you know, the wine and the bread. That was the big deal in a church service. And then the Protestants came along and said, "Ugh, enough of that. We need to actually talk about this faith. And, and so the emphasis shifted towards the word. And of course, the preacher becomes like, you know, the, the, the star of a Christian service. It's no longer serving the mass. It's the guy who can talk for a long time and explain the faith to you. And everybody's supposed to dig into the Bible and so forth. So it's words, 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 words. And of course, they shut down the monasteries, didn't they? Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Martin Luther may have gotten a lot of things right, but when they decided to shut down the monasteries, they shut down the contemplative practice that such as to the degree to which it still existed in Western Christianity, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And historically speaking, I mean, the contemplative tradition and the monastic tradition are used sort of interchangeably. You'll, you'll read the old sources and they talk about the contemplative life and what they mean as being a monk. Um, and I think in the modern world, we don't necessarily have to stick to that. Um, but it does show that if we're looking for contemplative teachings, of course, it's the monks in the monasteries who, who are the ones who are always focused on that in particular and, and who carried that particular aspect of the tradition. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, the Protestant tradition from which, you know, I'm in, it just, A, it shut down the monastery. So that whole tradition got lost. Um, and then it focused on words, 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 and also like this belief right? This whole idea that you got to believe that Jesus was alive and did these things, which, which is fine, but that's different than feeling the divine presence, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think there's, uh, there's belief and then there's faith. And this isn't a highly thought of theological point, but I think, um, you know, belief is good and, and it's good to have ideas, but there's something about faith, which is a bit more visceral. You know, I can have faith without really understanding. Um, and I think that we maybe have completed those two things, <laughs> faith and belief. So you've been exploring this through your blog and your Facebook groups and your website. And I'm just interested in what sorts of people have found this powerful and, um, and want to talk about this and get in on this. We actually have a really incredibly diverse group of people. Um, and I've tried to do some, you know, responsible things like figuring out our, our group dynamics and stats and, you know, what's our target audience and all that. Um, and it's hard to pin down sometimes. Uh, we're definitely international, so most of the people are in the U.S., but we have lots in Canada and the U.K., um, Australia, New Zealand, mostly English-speaking Commonwealth places. Um, and we have people from all kinds of religious backgrounds, ranging from practicing Catholics to lapsed Catholics to deconstructing evangelicals to sort of United Church, um, liberal, mainline Protestant type folks. Um, but it seems like all of them, the one thing that perhaps unites everyone is the sense that they're looking for a deeper inner life and a deeper exploration of, of the inner life of prayer and, and of that contemplative tradition, which um, just isn't very common from the pulpit, even in the traditions who still have it as part of their official stuff, like the Catholics still have it, you know, um, but it's not really spoken from the pulpit much even for them. Um, and so I think most people are just hungry for this deeper stuff. You see a lot of people, uh, Christians, and it's a good thing, nothing wrong with that at all, looking towards Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, um, other traditions that have a contemplative element and, and wanting to draw from them. Um, and that's beautiful and good. But I think a lot of the people who come to our community want to know how to do that with Christian language. 
And in, in your work, uh, you, as you said earlier, you go right back to the very beginning with Christianity. And I know that you've read a lot of the early works by the Christians, as have I. Um, and, you know, did Christianity start off this way? Oh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's right there. It's right there in the scriptures. You know, Paul talks about the spirit praying within him and, you know, the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding and all of these things come right from the scriptures. And also the tradition developed around it quite a bit as well. Um, a lot of it was inherited from the Greek philosophical tradition, as well as the, the Jewish mystical tradition. And it kind of brought it all together as Christianity has done in so many ways. Um, but yeah, no, that definitely goes, goes way back to, uh, to the earliest days of Christianity, to Judaism prior to Christianity and to the, the world in which Christianity evolved out of. And was Jesus a contemplative, do you think? I think so. <laughs> I think so. I imagine, um, you know, when he went out on his 40 day fast in the wilderness, I can't imagine he was just sort of uh, sitting around and, you know, planning the, the books for the church or something like that. He must have been doing some kind of contemplative practice in those 40 days in the wilderness. Yeah, and he does, he does seem to have a pretty regular practice of any time he does a miracle that attracts a crowd, he tends to just disappear off into the bush as fast as he can, right? Um, he yeah. doesn't, doesn't even want the disciples with him. I need some time to recharge. And he does that by getting, you know, becoming alone in the desert and being with God, right? Um, Jesus has quiet time, so why can't we have quiet time too, right? For sure. Yeah. <laughs> now, in uh, you mentioned the the monks and the hermits. Can you talk a little bit about how this uh, sort of started to take root in Christianity with the Desert Fathers and Mothers? Yeah, the, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the Desert Mothers and Fathers. Um, the story goes, and there's always when you go that far back in history, there's always going to be debate with scholars, and it's you know not exactly clear as we would like it to be. But the basic story goes that um, after the persecutions had, of Christians had ended in the empire. And Christianity became the main religion and the dominant force within the empire. There were some Christians who felt that wasn't a good turn um, and who wanted to maintain a more radical lifestyle, which they felt Jesus had called them to, in which a literal reading of his, the gospel certainly um, Jesus did teach. Uh, and so they, they fled out into the desert to try and sort of distance themselves from what they saw as a corruption of the faith into a faith of the empire and of politics and, and whatnot. Um, and they went out into the desert imitating Jesus on his 40-day fast. They used that as their sort of model to say, you know, well, we're going to be like Christ. We're going to go out into the wilderness and we're going to um, confront Satan, which, you know, to them meant confronting the things in themselves that weren't good. Um, and that's explicitly what they meant by it. You know, they, they go into great detail about, um, you know, challenging our own assumptions and prejudices and, and our prides and vainglories and our greed and all of that. And they, they wanted to come to terms with all of those things inside of themselves so that they could be able to reach God in prayer. Um, and the basic gist of it was that all of these negative thought patterns, you might say in modern language, which, which keep us from living a good life are also preventing us from that true, deep, um, apophatic, contemplative prayer. And so when we are able to overcome our pride and our greed and our anger, um, what arises within us is a deep connection to the oneness of all things and to a God. Uh, and that's what they were with. That's what they were after. Right. And yeah, it's interesting in their writings. Uh, there are some stories where, one of the uh, novice monks will walk up to a senior monk and say, I'm having all of these desires. Are these sent by the devil? 
and they'll say, no, those are yours. <laughs> the devil doesn't bother with small fry like you, you know, <laughs> you want to be St. Anthony or somebody. Yeah. The devil will, you know, come after you, but no, you're just dealing with your own garbage, <laughs> you know, cause I guess that was the big surprise for them, right? Like they made all of these sacrifices to move out into the desert. They gave up their families. They gave up property. In many cases, they gave up status and all that stuff. They move to the desert and they find that they've actually brought all sorts of mental negative um, thought patterns and habits and desires with them. It, it didn't actually matter how much stuff they left behind. And sometimes there's stories in, in the, in, from these days of somebody becoming proud and covetous over their Bible or their blanket you know, like these tiny things, right? It didn't, doesn't matter if you've got a palace or a single book, you can still just be as covetous and as greedy and as defensive as someone in a palace. Um, and so, yeah, they really had to focus on those things to burn them out. Um, and I guess they, they start off as lone actors, right? All spread out through the desert, but what happens after a while? Yeah, the, I mean, if you take the story of St. Anthony, who you mentioned, who's sort of seen or is seen as the, the sort of granddaddy of it all, um, you know, in his life, he goes out into the desert to be by himself and to figure out all this stuff and to find God in his heart. Um, and everyone is just fascinated by that and keeps following him. And he keeps trying to go further and further into the desert. And the crowds keep coming around him. And the more he tries to separate himself from the world, the more the world is interested in what he's doing. Um and over time, that developed into monasticism, as we understand it today. Um, there's a long, complicated history there, but they started to collect together. You'd have monks living in caves in the desert, and they'd come together once a week for mass um, and to have their conferences and talk about things. Um, and eventually, those groups became what we think of as monasticism today. Yeah, they formed into monasteries and became communities of people living. It's interesting if you look at someone like Basil, for instance, who... Um, was around the same time, though he wasn't in the desert with the, the Desert Fathers. Um, but his form of monasticism, was, and the, which was really implemented by his sister Macrina as well, um, was really about serving the poor. And so it was a different form of monasticism, whereas the desert monks were out looking to find God within and to remove themselves from the distractions of the world. Um, Basil and Macrina and their monasteries um, were built in the cities to, uh, to feed the poor and to uh, have hospitals. And there are some of the first examples of public health care, which we can see um, in the West at all, came out of the monastic tradition. Yeah. yeah, and I guess one of the things which when people hear about these first monks living alone in the desert, devoting themselves entirely to prayer, um, it sort of seems like, well, how is that helping the world by withdrawing from the world so thoroughly that, you know, how can you be of help to others? And yet they paradoxically attracted crowds, right? Like, I mean, people came out to see them and pray with them and, and they became proof that there was a way of doing Christianity that wasn't um, all for show and for trying to get status in the Roman empire. Now that Christianity had become legalized. Yeah. And then one of my favorite monks um, who wrote a ton of stuff that's really brilliant was called Evagrius Pontus. Um, and Evagrius defined a monk in one place, he defined it as many different ways, but in one of the instances he said a monk is someone who is completely removed from the world, but is one with everyone. Mm. Um, and so they definitely saw themselves um, as healing the world through prayer, primarily, and, and they, they understood that within their soul, there's this ancient idea that the soul is like a microcosm of the universe. Um, and so as we heal our soul, we actually heal the greater world. 
um, just vicariously through our spiritual nature. Um, and whether you agree with that or not, that was definitely their intention. They, they weren't about, you know, forsaking and destroying the world. They were removing themselves from the chaos so that they could find the peace to heal themselves, which they believed would help to heal everyone else. Now, one of the figures that you talk a lot about in your work is Pelagius. Um, and, and he got into a big debate with uh, Augustine, who most people have heard of, if only because they know of the idea of original sin. Um, and, you know, Augustine writes the big books that sort of set uh, medieval theology on its foundation for the next thousand years and, and beyond, really. But, um, and he calls out Pelagius big time, and he calls him a heretic and so forth. But you're a fan, so can you talk about what, what was Pelagius saying and why was Augustine so upset about it? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a big, a big thing. Um, one of the things to realize is that at the time, when we're talking roughly around the 500s, um, sort of at the end of the Roman Empire, Christianity still had a lot of different camps um, and they weren't as formally broken into denominations as they are today. We still have lots of different camps of Christianity, but everyone back then was one church with all of these different sort of theological schools and beliefs. Um, and Augustine accused Pelagius of, of creating a new heresy that went against the traditional Christian teaching, but pretty much all the scholars that I've read who actually do a deep dive into Pelagius's actual writing say he was just teaching a different stream of Christianity than Augustine was used to. And it was actually Basil, who we already mentioned, Pelagius and Basil, if you read them side by side, sound exactly the same. Um, and so Pelagius had this sort of older version of Christianity. Um, and Augustine was really innovating something new. And Augustine was a genius. He, he said a lot of amazing and brilliant and beautiful things. Um, and so I wouldn't ever put down Augustine whole cloth. Um, but he was innovative and he innovated something that went in a bad direction, I think, at the end of his life. And he started to believe that, um, you know, that the human being was so corrupted by the fall of Adam from Eden that we were not even capable of desiring what is good without God's direct intervention, that the human being's initial position is purely selfish and evil until God intervenes and with what's called prevenient grace. And, and changes that. And then once God's done that, we are able to work and, and heal ourselves and improve, but we can't even desire to improve or desire to heal ourselves without God's intervention. Um, and Pelagius rejected that doctrine. And he said that God gives to all people as part of their nature, everything which we need in order to live a good life and to desire what is good. Um, and that all of it exists within us in a, and can never be tainted or taken away from us. We just have to learn how to draw from what is, what is implanted inside of us by our creator. Um, and that's sort of the gist of it. Augustine won. And so the West took the view that humans are uh, sinful by nature until uh, perhaps baptism um, or perhaps until God just decides to, you know, sort of zap you with a magic lightning bolt and fix your brain. Um, but I personally think that that leaves a lot of people hopeless. You know, um, it's a theology which ends up, which Augustine did, <clears throat> believing that a lot of people are predestined to go to hell um, uh, with no hope of being able to change that of their own accord. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, I, you know, you can see why people turned eastward to for spirituality, because it, you know, the Hindu and Buddhist traditions said, you know what, 
you're messed up, you're suffering, but there is a way beyond this. If you meditate enough and you try to let go enough, then, you know, you're going to find <clears throat> some form of enlightenment or some sort of, you know, spiritual nourishment, which will qualitatively change your life. And that sounds very similar to what Pelagius was saying, right? Um, and uh, it, it sure looks, in retrospect, like the church saw an opportunity to be in charge of people as long as it told them you're garbage unless I help you. Mm -hmm. I think that's really true because Augustine was also big on baptism being a prerequisite for salvation. Uh, whereas for Pelagius, baptism was about uh, a dedication and a, and, and, a, and a new beginning, but he was very clear you have to live up to this great honor which you've, has been bestowed upon you as opposed to Augustine where it's like, well, now you're washed of original sin. Um, you know, this thing which Augustine really believed was passed down through sex. You know, he thought it was a, a, a hereditary sexually transmitted disease, essentially. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, that just doesn't hold up with what we know in modern life either, <laughs> besides just being weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, the Enlightenment brings back this idea that people are fundamentally good, right? Um, that they, they're not born terrible. Um, and yet it too is being sort of hijacked by the idea of, you know, you need external validation, whether it's through enough people liking your Facebook post or through buying stuff. You know, we, we're, our entire society is built on the idea that human beings are inherently incomplete and need external validation slash salvation help, even if you just express it in secular terms. So I know that many of my friends who are more on the new age side of things, what they found attractive about new age was it, it was fundamentally affirming, you know, you are inherently beautiful and that, and that motto, you are enough, right. Um, which you see everywhere. And yet that, that approach to things can also lead to a sort of, well, I guess I can do whatever I want because I'm enough. Right. Um, and that rarely works. <laughs> Can you talk about how, I mean, in the contemplative tradition, it's, it doesn't suggest that you just, you know, you're wonderful, relax, do whatever you want. It's fine. Instead, the contemplative tradition actually involves a fair bit of discipline and practice. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, for sure. It's a really good point. Um, because, yeah, I think the pendulum swung too far the other way sometimes. And the message, you know, you're perfect just the way you are and you don't need to change. And if people don't like you, it's their fault, not yours. I see a lot of memes that my friends share that say those sort of sentiments. Um, and at times, it's a really important message to hear that um, you're good enough the way you are. Uh, at times, that's the medicine which our particular wounds require. But at other times, we need to hear the truth, which is that we've fallen short and, and we're not actually treating people well and we've got some mistakes that we need to learn to correct. Um, I think for a theological framework around all that, I might jump back to Basil, um, who has this beautiful interpretation of, of the one line from Genesis 1 where it says that we are created in the image and likeness of God. Um, and Basil explores that. And for Basil, um, as well as the monastic tradition which, tradition which followed him, um, the image is one thing and the likeness is another thing. And so we often just imagine the image and likeness is kind of just a redundant statement, but for them, they were two different things. And so the image of God for Basil is our, uh, our ability and our capacity to grow. It's, it's the structure of our mind, which we are just given and we don't ever have to build. You know, we're just born the way we are. Um, and that's always good and it's, and it can't be anything other than good and nothing can corrupt it and nothing can change it. 
Um, but the likeness of God is changeable. It's not inherently bad, but it's shapeable, and, and we are able to shape it. Um, if we don't shape it, then our society and the influences around us will shape it for us. Um, and so an image, if you think of, you know, um, you know, we're looking at each other on a screen right now, and this image is pretty clear. So not that I'm comparing myself to God, but this is the image of Justin and the likeness is pretty good. Um, but if the image was bad and there was static and my face was all choppy, it would still be an image of Justin, but it wouldn't bear my likeness very well. It wouldn't really actually look like me. Um, and so the monastic tradition makes this distinction between these two things. Um, and one of the things I think Basil really, really is beautiful the way he says it. He says that God left our creation incomplete on purpose um, so that we can complete ourselves and that God wants us to use our free will and our effort to, to change and to grow and um, to create a work of art. And Basil actually talks about our life as a painting. And he says that, you know, if we were just a painting and God made us perfectly from the beginning, um, then we would just be another painting on the shelf. But God wants us to be artists and not just art. And God wants us to craft and shape. And so God's given us everything that we need in order to paint a beautiful picture, which is our life and our soul and our heart and our mind. Um, and it's up to us to practice and to pick up our paintbrush and to try and, and to see what kind of beautiful, creative thing we can make with ourselves. Right. Yeah. Um, and Basil's got... Um another interesting point he makes about the Holy Spirit, right? Like you're born beautiful, right? Like you're born, you know, the image of God, but it's up to you how much you're going to open yourself to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit can start to seep into you, right? Like through that little crack that you open at first. And what's interesting is he says that the Holy Spirit works incrementally. You only get as much as you can handle. And so if you ask for little and you're spiritually immature, you're only going to get a little bit of Holy Spirit to just push you along. But over the course of your life, that that window or that door gets wider and wider and you get more and more Holy Spirit. But it's it's interactive. It's not a one time deal. Voila, you are saved. It's more like, oh, you want to be saved? Well, let's do this one step at a time and your life will get better. Hopefully and your spiritual maturity will improve. Justin, thank you very much for being with us today. This was great. And maybe you could uh, just uh, plug your ministry for a second and uh, just say which uh, website you'd like people to go to if they want to learn more about what you've been doing. Yeah, you can visit us at newedenministry.com. It's all one word. So it's newedenministry.com. You can also look up um, In Search of a New Eden on Facebook or um, visit our Facebook group called The Virtual Chapel which is where our community life happens and where everything is sort of the central hub of what we do. Uh, on the website, you'll, there, you can sign up for an email list if you want to. And I, I put out a new blog post every Sunday morning. Um, and we also just have uh, a lot of different things going on. We have book studies. We have uh, an hour of silent prayer, which we do every Friday. Uh, and twice a week, we meet for what we just call chapel. So we share some readings from the mystics and contemplatives. Um, we have a 15 minutes of silence and we just have an open sharing circle um, afterwards. And those are really profound times and you're always welcome to join us. Wonderful. That's excellent. I'm so glad you're finding a way to use the internet to reach all the hermits in their caves all over the world. <laughs> Sometimes I think uh, about Julian and Norwich in her cell with her window. 
Um, and I think of my computer screen as like my little window. My cell is much more posh than hers would have been, of course. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't seem to have corrupted you, so I think you're doing okay. All right, well, thanks very much, Justin. Thank you, Justin and Stephen. You can find out more about Justin's community at newedenministry.com. The Rooster Crows is a production from Lawrence Park Community Church, a united church here in Toronto. For more information about either our podcast or the LPCC community, check out our website at lawrenceparkchurch.ca. The Rooster Crows is co-hosted by Rev. Stephen Milton and Rev. Roberta Howie, with this episode produced by Stephen. Thank you for joining us, and until next time, take care.